Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, and today I'm joined by Erwin Chemerinsky, author of Presumed Guilty, How the Supreme Court Empowered the Police and Subverted Civil Rights. Erwin, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on. I imagine a lot of my listeners already know who you are, but could you do a quick introduction for people who may be new to you and your work? Of course. I'm the dean of the University of California Berkeley School of Law. This is my fifth year here. Before that, I spent nine years as the founding dean of the law school at the University of California, Irvine. And before that, taught at Duke Law School, 21 years at the University of Southern California Law School. And I started my teaching career at DePaul in Chicago. I grew up in Chicago, grew up in a working class family. I'm the first in my family to ever go to college. Neither my parents nor brother or sister went to college. And I practiced law for a time after law school, but was very fortunate early in my career to do what I love most, become a teacher. And what drove you to write this book at this time? I signed the contract to write the book in January of 2019. I had taught criminal procedure again in the fall of 2018. And as I was going through case after case, topic after topic, I realized how much the Supreme Court had empowered rather than limited the police. I recognized how much that led to racialized policing. In early June of 2020, after the tragic death of George Floyd and the protests all over the country, my editor got in touch and said, how soon can you finish the book? (laughs) And I finished it over the summer and turned it in in late October of 2020. Any reader of the ABA Journal, which is my magazine, uh, will probably also know you from the numerous columns that you've written for us all about the Supreme Court and its history, looking at cases and doing kind of look-aheads at what they're likely to do. And this is a question I've long had. Where do you find the time to carve out space to write when you are the dean of law school and doing all these other projects? How difficult was it to find time to produce this book? What made it more difficult was the compressed schedule. I agreed in June to have the manuscript done by October, and I wasn't far enough along in June to be able to do that easily. So it was a struggle. It came, of course, in the midst of a pandemic, and I'm in my 14th year as being a dean, and without question, the last 18 months have been the hardest And dealing with the transition to online education last fall made it particularly challenging. I tend to do my writing very early in the morning or in the later evening or on the weekends. I find that from the time I start my work day and to the time I leave the office, even if I'm home doing the work, there's very little time to write. What was different about this book was that because I was on a compressed deadline, if I had a half hour meeting and it ended two hours, uh, 10 minutes early, I would then try to get a page, you know, started and wasn't relying on getting blocks of time as much as using any free minute to try to finish the manuscript. Wow. Well, let's get to the manuscript. One thing I found interesting is that a lot of the time when we talk about holding police accountable and the difficulties of doing that and protecting civil rights, we're talking about qualified immunity, things like of that nature. You decided to start this book with a discussion of a particular case, City of Los Angeles versus Lyons. Can you talk a little bit about that case and why you felt that one was the appropriate case to kick off this discussion? 
City of Los Angeles versus Lyons was Supreme Court decision from now almost four decades ago. What is involved here is a 24-year-old black man, Adolf Lyons, who was stopped by Los Angeles police officers late one night for having a burnout taillight. An officer ordered Lyons out of his car. The officer slammed Lyons' hands above his head onto the roof of the car. Lyons complained that the keys that he was holding were cutting into the skin of his palm. The officer then thought that Lyons was mouthing off and administered a chokehold on Lyons. The officer literally put his forearm around Lyons' neck and squeezed until Lyons was unconscious. Lyons awoke. He was spitting blood and dirt. He had urinated and defecated. The officer gave Lyons a traffic ticket and allowed him to go. Lyons did some research and he found at that point 16 people in Los Angeles, almost all like him, black men, had died from police use of the chokehold. Lyons sued the city for an injunction to stop police from using the chokehold, except when necessary to protect the officer's life or safety. The Supreme Court, five to four, dismissed Lyons' case for lack of standing. The court, in opinion by Justice Byron White, said Lyons could not show that he personally was likely choked again in the future. The court said a plaintiff seeking an injunction has to show a likelihood of future harm. No one then can ever sue to have the chokehold declared unconstitutional because no one's going to be able to show it's likely that he or she is going to be choked again in the future. It was the chokehold that killed George Floyd. It was the chokehold that killed Eric Garner and so many others. I chose to begin the book with this because I think it's a story that's not familiar to most people. I think it also reflects the Supreme Court's failure to to control the police. There are so many lower court cases challenging police procedures that have been dismissed based on Lyons because the plaintiff, though injured before, can't show a likelihood of future harm. One of the things, as just a general reader, I think people may find most surprising, and I say this because I had to be reminded of it too, even though I've read quite a bit in this area, is that what we now accept as very normal, that there are police and a police system, really is actually pretty recent when you look at it on a historical scale. When the founders were writing the Constitution and establishing a Bill of Rights, what would they have understood about what we now have, the policing system, and how would they have, have understood it if they could? On the one hand, there's always been some form of police, and the framers were very distrustful of law enforcement in any form. That's why the Fourth Amendment was added. It says that in order for there to be a search, a seizure, there generally should probably cause a warrant. That's why the privilege against self-incrimination is a part of the Fifth Amendment. And certainly there are aspects of due process that the framers would have thought were meant to constrain the police. But on the other hand, organized police forces, as we know them today, didn't exist until after the Civil War. What it was early in American history is there'd be a sheriff or a town constable or a marshal. And if there needed to be a group of people, say, to round up a suspect, the sheriff would gather a posse to go do that. Actually, the first organized police forces in the United States were slave patrols 
in the South that existed to round up fugitive slaves. Organized police forces in a professional, hierarchical, semi-military manner didn't begin until after the Civil War. You break into essentially four parts, looking at how the Supreme Court approached policing. There's everything before the Warren Court, then there's the Warren Court, the Burger Court, and then you combine Rehnquist and Roberts courts. Can I ask you about why you decided to break it up like that? Is that just, you know, what the cases showed made the most sense? Yes, it's very much what the cases showed that made the most sense. Prior to the Warren Court, the Supreme Court put very little in the way of limits on the police. The Warren Court was the only time in American history when there was a liberal Supreme Court, and actually it was only for a part of the Warren Court. The Warren Court was from 1953 to 1969, but there was a liberal majority only from 1962 to 1969. And it's important to look at what the Warren Court did to try to control policing, but also ways in which the Warren Court, too, empowered police. I think the Burger Court was the pivotal time. The Burger Court very much rejected many Warren Court precedents and had a totally different attitude with regard to the police. But then I think the Rehnquist and the Roberts courts have approached policing very much in the same way. And I think you can see the decisions of the Roberts court over the last 16 years is continuing what the Rehnquist court did from 1986 to 2005. And broadly, could you talk about what the Rehnquist and Roberts courts, which, you know, we still are under the Roberts court right now, what their attitude towards policing has meant for civil rights in general? I would summarize what the Rehnquist and Roberts courts have done in four points. First, with regard to the Fourth Amendment, they've made it possible for the police to literally stop any person at any time and then at least frisk the person. And we know that when police have that discretion, they're much more likely to use it against people of color. Statistics from every major city show that it's black and brown individuals who are far more likely to be stopped and frisked by the police. Second, the Rehnquist and the Roberts courts have made it much easier for police to question without needing to properly administer Miranda warnings and for the fruits of that interrogation to be admitted in court. And again, what we see is it's especially individuals of color who are much more likely to be coerced by the police. Third, the Rehnquist and the Roberts courts have failed to impose any limits with regard to police eyewitness identifications. We know from the work of the Innocence Projects that many innocent people were convicted on the basis of inaccurate eyewitness identification. Study after study shows the flaws with regard to eyewitness identification, especially cross-racial eyewitness identification. Yet since 1986, when the Rehnquist Court began through today, there's only been one Supreme Court case even dealing with eyewitness identification, and that ruled in favor of the police. Finally, even where there are rights, the Rehnquist and the Roberts Courts have undermined the remedies that exist. The Rehnquist and the Roberts Courts have very much gutted the exclusionary rule. They've limited the ability to sue local governments, or police officers for money damages. And we all know if there's no remedy, the right becomes meaningless. We've 
addressed Rehnquist and Roberts and what that Supreme Court composition did. And we've said that the Warren Court essentially gave a lot more weight to people's civil rights in the face of police enforcement. But you also mentioned, and you talk about in your book, the Warren Court wasn't some bastion of liberality in that it always constrained police. Could you talk a little bit about how they actually empowered police in other areas? Sure. And to be clear, there were many instances where the Warren Court put unprecedented limits on policing. In Miranda versus Arizona in 1966, they said police have to give warnings when questioning a suspect who's in custody. But in Terry versus Ohio in 1968, the Supreme Court tremendously expanded police power in the streets by giving police the power to stop and frisk so long as there's this amorphous standard met of reasonable suspicion. Terry versus Ohio came out of Cleveland. Two men in that city were on a public sidewalk and walked up and down the sidewalk several times. Police officers saw them, became suspicious, thought maybe they were, quote, casing the joint. I don't know this coincidence that the two men were black and the officer was white. The officer then stopped the men, frisked the men, and found guns on them. It was illegal possession of firearms, and they were charged. The men said that the police seizure and the police search violated the Fourth Amendment. The Constitution says police can stop someone, search someone, only if there's probable cause that a crime has been committed. Walking up and down public sidewalk is legal. It's not probable cause of a crime. But the Supreme Court, in opinion by Chief Justice Earl Warren, said police can stop individuals and frisk individuals without probable cause so long as there's reasonable suspicion. And we know from statistics in so many cities that police use the power to stop and frisk in a very racially discriminatory fashion. One thing that I didn't know prior to reading this book, and I'm very interested in it, and I want to hear about how it helped shape your attitudes towards police and civil rights, and also what is going on internally in police departments that results in these violations of civil rights and uh, policing that targets communities disproportionately. You were actually involved in a commission that looked at the Rampart scandal in Los Angeles. Could you briefly tell us, so what was the Rampart scandal? And then how did that impact you? And what did you find out that surprised you or now informs what you feel about our current policing system? In the spring of 2000, an LAPD officer Rafael Perez struck a deal with prosecutors. Perez had been caught taking cocaine from the police evidence room and substituting flour instead. And he said for reduction in charges and sentences, he would tell them what was going on in the LAPD. He worked in an anti-gang unit in a neighborhood of Los Angeles called Rampart, and that's what it was called, the Rampart Division. And the story that he told was how police officers in that division were regularly framing innocent people and lying in court to gain convictions. They believed that these gang members had committed other crimes, and therefore the key was to get them off the streets. The means became truly abhorrent. I was asked by the head of the Police Protective League, Ted Hunt, to do an examination of the Rampart scandal 
in the Los Angeles Police Department. He thought that unless the police union was seen as a part of the solution, it would be blamed as being part of the problem. I declined. I've always regarded the Police Protective League as the antipathy to civil rights in the things that I believe in. And he came back to me a couple of times and I said, okay, I'll do this for you on certain conditions. I want to be able to work with whoever I want. I'm going to work with civil rights lawyers. I want to be able to say anything I want. You don't get to read what I'm going to write before I release it. When I release it, I'm going to give it not just to you, but to the mayor, the city council, and the press. So it's a public document. And also, I want to be able to talk to police officers and want your help in that regard. He granted my request. I gathered a group of terrific civil rights lawyers, Connie Rice and Carol Sobel and Sam Paz and Paul Hoffman and Lori Levinson. And we worked really hard for six months. We released our report in September of 2000. And during that time, I had the great pleasure of speaking to about 100 police officers because I was doing this under the auspices of the Protective League. They were willing to talk to me. Overall, I was tremendously impressed. So many of the officers told me that the proudest day of their life was the day they got their badge. But I also saw the huge problem in the Los Angeles Police Department was its culture. As I wrote in my report, as I say in the book, is very much a culture that exalted Dirty Harry and shunned Serpico. It was a culture where they were taught from the police academy, here's what the law is, but we'll tell you how policing is actually done on the streets of Los Angeles. I learned of the implicit racial biases that very much infected policing. I learned that officers felt if they ever reported misconduct of other officers, their lives would be in danger. No one would be there to protect their backs the next time. In fact, they might even face official reprisal. That experience of interviewing the officers, of talking also to judges, prosecutors, defense lawyers, has very much shaped my view of policing and certainly influences everything in the book. And I do think that's so powerful because I'm certainly sure that I'm not the only person uh, listening to this podcast or considering these issues who... You know, I, I have met police officers. I have them in my family, in my you know friend circle. And you say to yourself, but these individuals I know are good people who mean well. How do these kinds of abuses happen? And it seems too simplistic to say, oh, well, there just pops up one bad apple, two bad apples in the barrel, and they're responsible for all of this problem when it comes to disproportionate enforcement against people of color and all of the abuses we see in civil rights. Do you think that there is a way to help change this culture or do we just need to pass laws that prohibit certain behaviors? You know, what do you think is the answer to changing that kind of culture? My answer is yes. We do need laws that prohibit particular police practices. We need to outlaw the police use of the chokehold as an example. But I also think we need to reform police departments. We need to deal with the problem of implicit bias. We also have to acknowledge there are some racist police officers and how we're going to deal with them. My hope is that the United States Supreme Court would 
change its interpretation of the Constitution to constrain the police. But that's not going to happen with this court. And so what I argue in the last chapter of the book is we have to look to other avenues for reform. Legislatures can do this. There was a bill that passed the House of Representatives last year that made major changes in policing. Unfortunately, it's stalled in the Senate. State legislatures can do this. Just a week ago, California Governor Gavin Newsom signed into law six bills that would change policing in California. Last year, California, for example, prohibited police from using the chokehold. Cities can do this to their city councils or their police commissions. State Supreme Courts can interpret state constitutions, protect more rights than the U.S. Constitution, and constrain the police. We also should remember that the Justice Department is a powerful federal law that it can use to sue police departments when there's a pattern and practice of civil rights violations. I was particularly interested in that last chapter when you talked about state constitutions, because I know an awful lot of attention is put towards the Bill of Rights and uh, you know what it guarantees all of us across the nation. But as you point out, things like gay marriage, a lot of those were passed not by looking at you know your rights under the federal constitution, but looking specifically at state constitutions. Could you talk a little bit about what avenues there may be for people within states to either update their state constitutions or rely on that when it comes to trying to change police behavior in their state? The key to remember is that states always can provide more protection of rights and create additional rights than the United States Constitution. Let me give you an easy example. The United States Supreme Court has said that when police search someone's garbage, it doesn't require a warrant or probable cause. But many state courts have said that under their state constitutions, the police should need to have a warrant and probable cause before searching one's garbage because there's still an expectation of privacy. Or another more powerful example, the Supreme Court has said it doesn't violate the Fourth Amendment if police stop somebody on a pretext. If the police follow a driver until the driver goes a mile over the speed limit or turns without a turn signal or doesn't stop long enough at the stop sign, the police can do this even though the real goal is to search the car for drugs. But many states have said such pretextual searches aren't allowed on state constitutions. The United States Supreme Court has said there's no right to an attorney at a lineup that's held before an indictment. Many states have said that there is a right to an attorney at lineups held before indictment. And I could go on with so many examples. In 1977, Justice William Brennan talked about the importance of relying on state constitutions to protect rights. Now, in light of the composition, the Supreme Court is more important than ever. So we've been talking throughout our conversation about police reform and the capacity citizens have to try and reform police. But as you know, being the dean of uh, Berkeley Law, there are also calls for abolition. We've spoken in this podcast to prison abolitionists and to police abolitionists. And you do address in your book why you think that reform rather than abolition is the proper response. Could you talk a little bit about that? Abolition isn't going to happen and it shouldn't happen. It's not going to happen because every society needs law enforcement. 
there are crimes and people who commit them need to be apprehended and they need to be punished. At the same time, it really shouldn't happen. If we eliminated police forces, what would happen is wealthier communities would just hire private security forces. And not only would that create inequality in society with regard to law enforcement, but also it would mean that those private security forces aren't constrained by the Constitution at all. The Constitution applies only to the government. I think the focus has to be on reforming the police. And what's interesting is opinion polls, including in communities of color, show very low support for the idea of abolishing the police. What would you like for people to have as their takeaway from your book after they read it? There's a serious problem with policing in the United States. It's especially a problem for communities of color. I want them to see how the Supreme Court has contributed to that problem. But most of all, I want people to see that there are solutions available outside the Supreme Court through legislatures, through state courts, through Justice Department action. Well, Erwin, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the Modern Law Library. If people want to pick up Presumed Guilty, How the Supreme Court Empowered the Police and Subverted Civil Rights, or get in touch with you for any other reason or further questions, how should they do that? The book is available through all of the online booksellers, as well as, thankfully, it's in bookstores. In terms of getting in touch with me, I can give my email address. It's E-C-H-E-M-E-R-I-N-S-K-Y at law.berkeley.edu. But to make it even easier, if anyone wants to go to the Berkeley Law website, they'll find my email address there. And have you already started a new project, or are you taking a little break after the... uh sprint that you were just put through? I finished a book that the American Bar Association Press is publishing this fall. It's a review of the Supreme Court decisions from last term. And I've completed a manuscript that Yale University Press is going to be publishing next year on the flaws with regard to originalism as a way of interpreting the Constitution. Well, Erwin, thank you again for joining us for this episode of the Modern Law Library. And thank you to my listeners. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe in your favorite podcast listening service.